Don't let your final farewell stir up family feuds. Welcome to Before You Go, a podcast brought to you by Texas Estate, Trust, and Guardianship Attorneys, Stacey Kelly and Keith Morris. Preserve your hard-earned legacy. Be in the know. Welcome to our podcast, Before You Go. I'm Stacy Kelly. been practicing in Texas probate for 23 years now. Every estate is different, but I've seen most everything there is to see, or at least a, a variation of it. I was born in Dallas. I'm in Houston now, Texas native. So the purpose of this today is for, and Keith will introduce himself in a second, is for us to educate you guys on probate and fiduciary litigation and help you out and hopefully answer some of your questions. My name is Keith Morris. I've been an estate and trust lawyer for 22 years, sort of the opposite of Stacy. I was born in Houston, but now I live in Fort Worth. So together, she and I have practiced formally and informally for a very long time. I don't even remember how long, honestly, but we're excited about this opportunity to sit down and kind of talk through some of these aspects of estate and trust litigation, administration, guardianships, trusts, probably throw in some very interesting anecdotes about cases we've had. Of course, not using the real names in order to protect the innocent and nor the guilty. But, you know, I think that this is a good opportunity for us to apply some real life stories to and demystify a subject that sometimes causes people a lot of angst and anxiety. So that's kind of why we're doing this. You know, the reason why we decided to focus on this area is one, this is our practice area, but also there's just not a lot of educational materials out there for the public, at least ones that I would consider to be quality. And I think that the two of us can provide interesting stories and also some outlines and topics to discuss that'll shed some light on some things that cause people concern. And that's why we're doing this. And I think it's important, obviously, because everybody's going to die. Uh, we just don't know when. And so it's, it's important to sort of get these things out in the open, talk about them before we go. So I will turn it over to Stacy to discuss the uh, Texas probate process. Today's kind of an overview of what we do. Future podcasts, we'll be delving into each of these areas a little bit more. And like Keith said, giving you stories and examples. So hopefully you can apply them to your situation. Texas probate is when you die, an estate is opened. It's your estate. And that can take several different forms of opening an estate. That is to get your estate open, have someone in charge of your estate who hopefully can fulfill your wishes the way you want your estate to be administered and who you would like to ultimately receive your estate. And hopefully we can help you with some misconceptions you might have about the probate process, the cost, the difficulties in the probate process. And Keith, let's talk about situations where probate is necessary. Yeah. So one of the common things that happens all the time, and I know you see this and I see this and it's very frustrating, but people come to us and they say, well, I'm the named executor in the will. I have a will. It's right here. And so I need to be able to go administer my cousin Sarah's assets or my brother Bob's assets. And what I tell them every time, and it's just sort of a rote thing from memory at this point, is that is just a piece of paper until a judge says that it's not. It is a worthless piece of paper until a court declares this will is valid 
and the provisions contained herein uh, are to take effect. And so there are a few different methods uh, in Texas of probating an estate. Uh, one of them is to probate a will. And probating a will, and we're assuming for the sake of, of this discussion that that you have gone to see a lawyer and had a will drafted rather than going to the internet and using a form or trying to do one yourself, or even worse, having someone who's not a lawyer do it for you. And we will have an entire uh, episode dedicated to why you shouldn't do that, because that is problematic. We've seen lots of different situations where that has caused problems. But you take the will to a lawyer, have them file the will for probate, and then the will gets admitted to probate in the probate court. So the next method is called an independent administration. And that is when you go into the office, there is no will, or at least not a valid will. And the attorney drafts a document called an application for independent administration and airship. And that airship document combined with the application and consent of all of the known heirs is what makes it independent and allows you to essentially distribute the estate in accordance with the laws of descent distribution in Texas. So instead of there being a will and it going to the beneficiaries of the will, then you have an estate where the assets get distributed according to what the, the state of Texas prescribes as the laws of descent distribution. And there's tables and charts that explain that. Then the third method is what's called a dependent administration. And that's when you can't get all the heirs to agree on one person to serve, or there's a minor child and the court doesn't feel comfortable allowing someone to serve independently then the court makes you dependent administrator. And when that happens, then you are required to post a bond in the amount of all of the liquid assets of the estate, plus usually about 20%. And that bond continues with you until you're discharged from your duties as the administrator. So just as an overview of the three different main ways that you do that, that you open an estate in Texas, those are the three ways. There are other ancillary ways of doing that. And, and Stacey can discuss that briefly, but those are the three main ways as far as opening an actual estate. Okay. Usually when you have the will, you file it, like Keith said, for probate. A personal representative is appointed over the estate, and that person is in charge of administering the state. And there's several guidelines laid out by common law or by statute that tell you exactly how to do that. Again, that's, as Keith mentioned, it's why you need to go to a lawyer and not try to do this yourself because you will get caught up in all kinds of deadlines and creditor claims and different aspects that you a lawyer can help you navigate a lot easier than you trying to do it yourself. Usually, if there's, this is assuming no contest. This is assuming the will's valid. No one's contesting it. We're going forward with this administration. You can usually get a hearing within a couple of months of you filing your application, depending upon notice and who you give notice to. And you can be appointed at that hearing to be the administrator or the executor. And you can start your duties as soon as you file your oath, swearing to abide by the laws and to administer the estate the way it's supposed to be administered in Texas. There's, if you have smaller estates, we can also do what's called small estates affidavit. That's where there's not enough assets and there aren't debts of the decedent so that you can just transfer title 
to a few things, muniment of title. That's a quick way to do it when there are simple assets and they don't exceed, what is it, Keith? It's either fifty dollars or $75,000. I never remember. Yeah, I never remember, but I can look it up before you come in. That's right. And sign up with me. <laughs> There's also one thing we didn't mention, and we can get it more into detail on this on another podcast, but Texas, one of the things about Texas or one of the aspects of Texas probate that some other states don't have is we allow holographic wills in Texas. Don't recommend them. However, I know a lot of lawyer friends of mine, that's all they have are holographic wills at this point, which is like the cobbler's children have no shoes. But a holographic will has to be 100% in your handwriting, signed by you, be obvious you want it to be a will and to tell you who we want to be the executor, whatever you want to put in that holographic will. Those are a little bit more difficult because when you go to prove them up, you have to have people testify to the handwriting of the decedent. And sometimes that can get difficult because you're bringing in witnesses that you wouldn't normally have to bring in. But of course, that's a whole nother podcast on holographic wills. Next, we wanted to touch a little bit on will contest. What happens when someone contests your will? And how do you avoid that? How do you handle that? Keith, why don't you explain what a will contest is? Essentially, if someone files a will for probate and for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into in a few minutes, they believe that the will is not valid or fraudulent or not correct, then they can file either just a, they can either file another will, an older will that they believe is valid in place of that will which then creates what's called a natural contest, which essentially means one person's requesting that, you know, will A be admitted, another person's requesting that will B be admitted, and the court has to decide which one's valid. On the other hand, someone can file a will for probate, and then someone can then file an application for independent administration, not necessarily in that order. It can be turned around the other way. That's also a natural contest because someone's making an allegation in the independent administration application that there's not a valid will, but someone else is coming along and saying, no, 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 here's a valid will. And if that person that's filed the independent administration application doesn't agree, then, and they don't dismiss, then that also is a will contest. And then there's this, the normal flavor of will contest, which is someone files a will for probate. And rather than having another will or an independent administration application, I just file a document saying objection to and contest of Sally Joe's 1993 will. And then you make allegations in there. And some of the allegations are that uh, at the time that the testator executed the will, they didn't have capacity, meaning they didn't have the mental ability to formulate the thoughts required to make a valid will. They can allege undue influence, which is not the same as lack of capacity. Undue influence is more someone can uh, have capacity and still be unduly influenced when someone's whispering in their ear or doing things to secret away a person to prevent them from contacting other family members or you know prevent it's essentially overriding their natural desires through coercion so uh, that's what undue influence is and then there's a couple other ones fraud that usually occurs when someone tries to forge someone's handwriting or forgery also, same thing. Fraud can also occur if someone tries to substitute out a page in the will. Improper execution, which means that 
formalities relating to the execution of the will were not met. One of those being that the witnesses and the notary all need to be in the same room with the testator when they sign. They don't have to be in the same room with each other. They have to be in the same room with the testator when they all sign and some other things. So those are the most of the bases for a will contest. There are others, but, and one really interesting one that I had recently was that the contest is based on one thing, which is one side believes that he intended for the document to be a will. The other side believes that he did not intend for the document. To be. So we're literally going to have a fight over intention. But yes, that's basics. Okay. So things that can cause a will contest, a second marriage, when the testator, that's the person drafting the will, the testator, he or she remarries. So there's a stepmom or a stepdad involved and the kids from the prior marriage don't like the way he left everything to his 23-year-old girlfriend, which we see a great deal, knocking out one child, disinheriting one child over another. Unnatural disposition. Yeah. Unnatural dispositions when the you know, normally you leave to your children. If you don't leave it to them equally or you leave it to someone else, those can cause those other potential beneficiaries to want to contest the will. We'll get into that one day about ways to avoid that, how to make sure that um, your wishes are fulfilled, even though you might have two families, a, a prior family and a current family. When you go to file the will contest, it's a trial. It becomes a trial. And that's why you hire people like Keith and I, who specialize in trials and specialize in will contest. You don't want just a, a probate attorney who's used to just opening estates and administering them. If you're going to go down the litigation route, you really need a lawyer that is comfortable in a courtroom, has been before juries, and has seen enough of these cases to anticipate what's coming down the road and to prepare for that before the trial. You're going to get a docket control order. You're going to have deadlines. You're going to have discovery where you have to give information back and forth, take depositions. It is not an inexpensive event. <laughs> it is not. And that's one of the, the misconceptions that we encounter all the time. One, the question that I think that I get asked most often is, how much is this going to cost me? And the same answer I give, I give every time, which is 15 years ago, the first will contest I ever tried, we took minimal discovery, no depositions. It was a two-day trial. And my hourly rate was a lot less than it is now. And I think we tried that case for $22,572.50, more or less. More or less. And that even in and of itself is not an insignificant amount, but in this day and age, with how litigious people have gotten, with the number, the increased number of lawyer shows where everybody thinks that, I mean, that's the thing really that's killed all of us is, you know, you watch Suits and Harvey Specter goes in there and, you know, he resolves the whole case in one episode. They don't tell you the elapsed amount of time between the beginning of the episode and the end. They also don't tell you that the process from start to finish on a trial is especially with this, how busy the courts are in pretty much every metropolitan area now, you're looking at at least a year, sometimes nine months, but mostly a year. And then, frankly, a lot of lawyers, they attack the case that's coming, the headlights that are approaching 
sooner than the ones that are further off. And so, you know, they may not pay as much attention to the case that's set for trial in August of 2024. They're going to worry about the case that's set for trial in May of 2024. And so by the time they realize, oh, gosh, I have a case set for trial in August, then they ask for a continuance. And that's not really necessarily anybody's fault. I mean, there's a lot of cases out there right now and a lot of work and just not enough people, frankly, that are qualified to do it. And so a lot of folks end up getting getting pretty overloaded with cases, but get them all resolved one way or the other. At least that's been my experience and what I've seen. And so, yeah, I mean, there's just things you got to think about. That I think we should have a, an entire podcast on how to avoid will contests, but quickly, a couple of things you can do in Texas, you have a no contest clause. And I have people bring me wills all the time and say, there's a no contest clause and my sister has filed a will contest, so she doesn't get anything. Those no contest clauses are not as airtight as you would think they are. A lot of times you can get around those no contest clauses. Things you can do, you can discuss with your family members why you're doing the will the way you're doing the will. And hopefully that will help in when you do pass on that they won't fight. Another great thing to do is if you're cutting somebody out or substantially cutting someone out is to give them a gift, a monetary gift at or about the same time you draft your will because they will probably accept the 5000 or the $10,000 from you. And then when you die five years from now, it's going to be very difficult to claim you didn't have capacity because you accepted a gift from this person. So obviously you thought they had the capacity to give to you. Right. Yeah. So there's some things that you can do. And again, that's the reason to go to a lawyer and not get the will off the internet. Family dynamics. You may think your family gets along great, you'd be amazed what happens because the testator may be the only person keeping the family together and coherent and talking and enjoying each other's company. And once that testator dies, a lot of times those relationships are adversely affected by that. And one other thing that you can do to sort of, I hadn't heard of this before, maybe you heard of it, legacy letters. Have you heard of those? No, I don't think I have. Okay. So a friend of mine told me that some people at church were advocating doing legacy letters. And I asked some of the other lawyers that I know about this and and some of them had heard of them, some of them hadn't. But essentially what it is, is in addition to leaving your will, you leave a handwritten letter where you sort of address everybody and tell them, you know, some things that you wish you'd told them or some things that they didn't know. Hopefully none of it's salacious, but you never know. And that might, in addition to just being something that could provide some catharsis for somebody, it also could be the basis for trying to help stave off a will contest. If you write a letter, if you encourage the client to write a letter and say, you know, Timmy, I left you out of my will. And the reason is I love you very much, but I knew that you had a drug problem or an alcohol problem, or you had problems saving money. So I, I gave you as much as I could during while I was living way more than all the rest of your siblings or your cousins or whatever else. And so, you know, in order to sort of make everything equal at my death, I provided for everybody else but you. You know, if you'll recall, I gave you $5,000 around the same time that I did this will. Um, and that was meant to be my final gift to you because I love you. But, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't provide for you in the will, but there, I had reasons for doing it. And none of them were because I didn't love you or because I was trying to punish you. 
Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, fantastic idea. And especially the handwriting of it, you know, when it's not, some people advocate putting that in a will to explain why you're leaving someone out. But again, that's just, yes, that's just the will. And the person's already adverse to the will. They don't like that document. Yeah. So having a handwritten letter from dad or, you know, that's a great idea. Let's talk about one more subject before we wrap up this first podcast, and that's guardianships in Texas. And a guardianship is when someone who has lost capacity to care for themselves and take care of themselves, that someone else becomes their guardian who can do that. You want to explain how you do that with estate planning and how to anticipate you might need a guardian one day? Sure. So as Stacy mentioned, it's stepping in and essentially, if you're breaking it down to its simplest form, it is you becoming the parent of a loved one, whether it's your parent or somebody else. I mean, you're essentially given the same rights and privileges. You can, depending on what the court decides, you're given power to make financial decisions for them, medical decisions, and all those things. And but Well, that depends. Right. Well, that would depend on whether you're guardian of the person or guardian of the estate. Right. So exactly. So why don't you explain what those differences sure. are? Sure. So a guardian of the person is essentially the person that the court would appoint to make medical and just everyday living decisions for the incapacitated person. And a lot of times when either a trust has been set up for an individual that is managed outside or the person doesn't have an estate, for instance, you know, there are a lot, a lot of times guardianships that we do are for minors who age out. And what aging out means is that they go from being 17 to 18. And in order for them to continue to get benefits, they have to have a guardian. And so we apply to, to be, a, you know, for the parents to be the guardian of those children. And they just continue to do what they've been doing as parents, as long as their child lives. And then the other circumstances are where sometimes Older individuals just don't have assets. And so they only need a guardian of the person to help make decisions. And they're living on Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security or whatever, but yeah, or a pension. And so that's the circumstance where it's just guardian of the person. If the incapacitated individual has substantial assets or even somewhat substantial assets, then the court's going to want to appoint someone to manage those. And that would be the guardian of the estate. And when you're the guardian of the estate, it's a lot more complicated. Um, you have to keep track of every receipt. You have to file a yearly accounting with the court. You basically have to ask for permission to spend that person's money because the court has an interest in ensuring that you don't steal or misuse, whether intentionally or unintentionally, misuse their money. And so that's the reason why you have to file those yearly accountings. But as Stacy was mentioning earlier, there are you do have the ability in your estate planning to name a guardian of your person and estate in the event that it's needed later. The upside of that is that you have put forth a piece of evidence which acknowledges your preference. The downside is the court doesn't have to follow that. It's not a, if this person is named as your guardian and you've named them your estate planning, they automatically become the guardian. They still have to go through the process of being appointed and being vetted by the court. Because if you appoint somebody in your will to be your guardian and then they are disqualified by law, then they can't still can't serve. And things that would disqualify you would be, you know, certain criminal convictions, the fact that you're not a resident without a resident agent, that you, you owe the proposed ward some money or things like that. So 
you still have to go through the process of being appointed. But in the event that two people are equally qualified and desire to be the person's guardian, that letter, that notarized document that establishes the preference will usually put that that person over the edge in, in terms of preference. Yeah. And to be a guardian in Texas, you have to complete an online guardianship course, if you will. And the court's going to make sure you've done that before you are appointed the guardian. You also, if you're guardian of the estate, you're going to have to be bonded for the amount of money that that person has. And you might not have had criminal convictions, but you might have four bankruptcies. And the court's not going to be keen on having someone who can't manage their own money manage someone else's money. Because ultimately, the court is responsible for reviewing what the guardian has done and for those annual accounts. Yeah, and judges are bonded for instances where things happen to, it doesn't usually apply in will contests, but usually applies in guardianships. Judges are bonded. And so if something happens, then you know a family member could not only go after the guardian's bond, but also potentially go after the judge's bond to recoup any losses that the ward may have suffered. And so judges are very keen on protecting not only their electorates and the people that live within their their area, but also making sure that no one comes and pops their bond because that would not be fun. We can get more into that on another podcast because there are some actually horrible stories about guardianships. And as probate attorneys, sometimes the court will appoint us to be a guardian or when two family members can't... Uh, family can't get along, can't decide who the guardian's going to be. Sometimes the court will just say, I'm not listening to this. I'm going to appoint someone. It also happens with administrators of estates. Courts can appoint us. Keith and I have both served to administer estates when there's no one viable out there. Everyone's accusing each other of you know, malfeasance. So court says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appoint someone that I know that knows how to do this, who can be bonded. So. We not only know how to tell you to do it, we've actually done it ourselves. So, And we ourselves have been some of the subjects of the horror stories. Oh, absolutely. I've been on the news here in Houston for trying to sell someone's piano. I mean, they wheeled her out into her driveway and had the news out there about how terrible I was. So, But I was acting under... Yeah, there was an entire website to, dedicated to how I was from uh, the devil... Actually, I think I've been on that website. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I, I got on that as well. I'm not I'm not going to give her name because that'll just give her more listeners. But uh, yeah, I think most of us have been attacked for just trying to do our jobs. So it's a thankless job usually. So that's something to discuss with your lawyer before you decide you actually want to be someone's guardian. Well, I guess that was um, it's a lot to discuss today. Kind of a quick overview. We'll talk about other things in future. We didn't get into trusts today or estate planning. There's, Yeah, I mean, there's going to be, we are going to discuss a wide variety of topics. Yes, this is a podcast about estate and trusts and guardianships. But when you're talking about exiting the mortal coil, there are lots of considerations that you have to make, not just estate planning, but things like funeral expenses. And then once you're gone, people have to make terminations about, okay, mom and dad had a house. There's a bunch of junk in it. What do I do with it? Speaking about trusts, we will have someone from a trust company on to talk to you about corporate trustees. We'll have someone that, that offers services related to 
cleanup and removal of garbage in houses for probate estates. We'll have people on to talk about high-end estate planning and taxable issues. Someone to talk about funerals. I mean, that's something that you have to consider. Life insurance and insurance policies, all of those things will be discussed as we begin to have guests on, which should have probably in the next couple episodes. And we will make sure to keep everyone informed of who's coming next and what the discussion is going to be. So tell everybody, Keith, how do you subscribe to this podcast? How do you know the next one's coming? How do you contact us? So this podcast will be on uh, Spotify and Apple, or you can go to the web, get our website at uh, www.texas-probate-attorney.net. And we will have all information about the podcast, about how you can contact us if you have questions. And I can tell you both of us, this is not just about, oh, we're trying to solicit clients. That's not what it's about necessarily. It's also about getting word out and answering questions. And so if you have questions, you can feel free to email us or call us and ask because we want to make sure that people are informed because that's important. And so, you know, we thank everybody for listening today. This has been fun for the both of us. And, you know, the episodes will usually be around this length or maybe a little bit longer as we start to hone in, but uh, we've, we're thankful for the opportunity to, to get on today and talk to you. Definitely ask us questions. Go on the website. We will address them, if not the next podcast, but, you know, as we get into that podcast that covers that subject. So Certainly. Basically, it's before you go, what you should know. And hopefully we are fill, filling that in for you and you'll know exactly what you need to do before you go. Absolutely. All right. Nice talking to you, Stacy. Nice talking to you, Keith. All right. Have a great day. You too. Now, before you go, learn more about how Stacy and Keith can help protect you by calling MK Legal or visiting us on the web. Links to our website and phone number are in the show notes. The information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and receipt viewing or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. 